Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about seven different things that you'll see in a Catholic church. Uh, we go item by item, and then Dennis and Chris talk about why they're there and what do they mean. Also, we have a few business items to tend to. If you want to sponsor one of our podcast episodes, please give us a call at 847-837-4547. We still have a number of spots open for season two. And speaking of season two, uh, we had a coffee talk episode between Dennis and I a couple weeks back, and a lot of you actually listened to it and said that you liked it. So we have another coffee talk episode coming out this week. You can look for that uh, probably Thursday or Friday. Again, that's not an official Liturgy Guys episode. That's just Dennis and I sitting around and having a conversation. So look for that Thursday or Friday. And then lastly, I want to let you guys know that as of this week, we are official sponsors of the Focus Student Leadership Summit that will be held here in Chicago from January 2nd to the 6th. So I highly encourage that you go to this, for one. And for two, if you do go, make sure that you come visit us at our booth, at the Liturgical Institute booth. Uh, Dennis and I will be there for sure. I don't know if Chris will be there or not yet. But hopefully he can make it out there too. So we'd love to to see you and have you come up and introduce yourself to us at that conference. And please go. It will be a fun time. And we love going to those events. Obviously, uh, we're major sponsors. So we are highly invested in the work that Focus is doing as well. So without further ado, episode five of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Dennis. What? I'm I'm just gonna introduce this and then I'm just gonna let you roll with it. Roll, roll the, baby, roll. Roll, tide. roll it. Um, you wrote an article for the Catechetical Review, which is edited by Liturgical Institute graduate and University Steubenville Franciscan University Steubenville professor James Pauli. James Pauli, nice. Who is James the Lesser or James the well, Greater? He's pretty great, even though okay. he tortures James me. The medium. James the medium. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. the so-so, the mediocre. <laughs> That's not true, James. Yeah, we we uh, we like you, right? And he listens to these podcasts with his daughters in the car, and they whenever we mention James, their names, you're the best. So, James, uh, we just want to give you good tidings. Um, you know, ha, 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 ha. You'll, you'll know what that means. Yeah, uh, and but, hi to your daughters too. Hi to your daughters, uh, Marin now, and oh, anyway, keep going. <laughs> now you now you've dug yourself a hole. Mm. You can only remember one of his daughters' names, and this is hilarious. But they're also cool and yeah, talented. Right. Really talented. The other two are pretty Musician. cool, too. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Anyway, let's go. <laughs> All right. So you wrote a new article for the Catechetical Review. Catechetical Review. Say that five times fast. Catechetical Review. And it's um, July, seven September. things you don't like. No. What is it? Ten things I hate. The no. seven, seven habits of highly effective Catholics. in a catechist. good church. Church architecture tour guide crash course. All so, right. so basically, it's the summary of the theology of the church building, 
And, you know, when I go and give tours, people are like, oh, how do you know this? It's like a sacrament of heavenly Jerusalem. Like, because it's not that hard, right? So there's like seven points. If you know three of these, you will be considered a genius. But we'll tell you all friends. seven instead of just three. Right. Well, and the, the big picture is there's lots of architectural stuff in the Bible. Name some architectural things in scripture. Temple. Right. Temple, not just a building. Oh, man, but, you stole mine. But Christ's body is a temple. So Christ's we, body. Right. Christ's body is a temple. And who is that body? Gems in the, the church. Sun. Oh, sorry. I was, the church. I was well, saying other things. The, the, the church, body. us, people, we're the body, we're the temple, and we're being formed into the spiritual house. This is the language, you're living stone. So all these architectural analogies are not just accidental. They're something in the nature of worship itself. So when you start bringing this theology into a church building, you have to see what's in front of you. And if you're designing a new church building, you want to put that stuff in the design. Right. So, so what's, what's number one? Number one. A church is called a church. Why? Because... Oh, man. Here, you can, I, you can look at the article. A church is because a church is... Oh, a church is building is called a church because it signifies the mystical body of Christ composed of many members perfectly fitted together, obviously. Right. Not so hard, right? But if you think about it... <laughs> Nailed it. Give me a ding on that one. <laughs> nice. We, You know, a church is called a church. Like, the people... In the synagogue, don't say we are synagogue. Muslims don't say <laughs> we, we, are we are mosque. <laughs> we are whatever. But we say we are church. It's weird to have the idea of the people, the name of the people who are assembled, uh, similar to the building. But basically, Christ calls people together when he's on earth, these apostles, and they call people in from all nations. And then they call everybody in and they assemble properly to offer worship to God. And then God dwells in them. So the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the presence of God through the life of the church and the sacraments. So um, when you go to a church and you want to show your friends around and say, look, see that brick, see that stone, see that column, they are all members of the church building, but they signify members of the church. People who are in leadership roles, who are in foundational roles, who are public, who are private, who are real flashy and gold vestments like gems, but my others might be. That would be my brick for sure. Yeah, what, uh, what part of the church are you, Jesse? Ooh, I'm in the nave. Yeah. <laughs> What's number two? I'm in the church kitchen in the basement. Oh. Wow, number two. Yeah, we have to get through a lot of these. All right, number two. The church building shows the fulfillment of both the temple and the synagogue. Tell me, what does that mean? What's the synagogue Ooh, for? I actually know this one. Okay. Okay, so the temple is where a sacrifice happens. Right. And a synagogue is where the word of God is heard. Primary, yeah, those are the big distinctions right there. So the temple is where worship happens, but it's where sacrifice happens. It's where you meet God. To go into a church is to leave the earth. It's to leave space and time. It's a locus or a very small place on earth where everything is perfected, glorified, brought to its divine perfection. Do I get a ding for that? God dwells there. Should I give him a ding? No, no, no. All right. What? Have a ding. (laughs) Mini ding. Little ding. I'll just give you a clunk. Oh, actually, that was better than I thought. All right. And um, so a church is a temple. It's where the place where sacrifice is offered. To go into a church that looks totally different. When you go into church and you feel like you've left time, then you know there's enough temple stuff there. You see images of angels and saints and things that are not normally on earth, and they're all encounterable there. What about the synagogue part? Synagogue part. Well, liturgy of the word, right? That's how you start. The proclamation of the word is, hey, Jesus exists. He died for you. He's offered his body for you. He's founded the church. And then you say, oh, okay, I'll do that. And then you actually do it and you live it in the sacrificial life of the church. So part of the reason we're talking about any of this is because people often think a church is just kind of that nice looking living room where we do that churchy stuff. And they don't see the sacraments, sacramental reality of the church. If they looked at the, the host and said, oh, there's that nice little white disc that we 
push around at mass. That would really be to miss the inner nature of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. And that we kind of tolerate with church architecture pretty readily. We say, as long as it looks pretty and has a steeple, that's enough. But we're talking about the essential. Yeah, we're getting deeper here. What word have I not said in the season yet? Ontology! Ontology! Right, the essential ontological reality, the very nature of a church. Number, Number three. 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 Okay. Three. A church building allows worshipers to see the population of heaven and join with their prayer. Oh. Is there uh, a population in heaven? Yes. yes. How do you know? Because uh, the Bible tells me so. Bible tells me so. The Tradition of the church tells so. us. How do you encounter the angels and saints worshiping around the throne of God? In the Mass. Yeah, but how? How? Well, um, I think the building should tell you wh- how? where you are. Uh, Answer visual, the question. Visually, visually. Like you see things. Like what things? Like stars and angels and saints and... Um, angels and saints primarily, right? Or the persons of the Trinity itself. Yeah, there are no stars in heaven. I forgot about that. Part. Well, they're part of the cosmic uh, liturgy, but they're not, they're not beings, the population of heaven, properly speaking. But... The, liter- the, the descriptions in scripture are such that around the throne of God are the white-robed elders, the, the four-winged creatures, all these people praising God. And you hear that introduction to the Sanctus. We join our voices with the angels and the saints as we cry yeah, out. So you as see them, but you hear them too. And then you hear their voices. If the choir makes that sound sound heavenly, what would the perfected, radiant, elevated, glorified, perfect version of that even song the, even sound Even the choir, like? we've talked about choir lofts on a different occasion. For They're even... In the heavens, they're elevated. They're, in a, they're, yeah, they're elevated, right? and yeah. the sound from them comes down and kind of falls on you like mm. mist. And so that's the the yeah. sanctus for the ear, but the sanctus for the eye is done in images, mosaics, paintings, that kind of thing. Number four, number four, four, four. four the church four, building four, four. shows the new heaven united to the new earth. What's the new heaven? What's the new earth? Mm. Uh, this is from the Book of Revelation. Oh man. Okay. What's the oh, What's the, the old earth though? Eden, where we. No, right, yeah. where we are now, right? Right, Eden, Wait. fallen Eden, right? Oh. oh, yeah. So we're in Eden, but it's fallen. Well, we were in happy, right relationship with Eden, with God in the old Eden, which was the place where God dwelled. So Eden was the temple. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, and suddenly fruit is not just growing on trees everywhere. You have to work for it by the sweat no, of your brow. In California, it is. Have you ever been on the street, like pick a lemon right yeah, off of Yeah, the but they have droughts and insects and yeah, all true. kinds of problems. So, you know, the earth is meant to be hospitable to us, and it still is in many ways, of course, but it's also kind of hostile to us in terms of droughts yeah, and storms and bugs sweat on and our brow snakes and, and all kinds of things. The new earth is described in the heavenly Jerusalem inside the city has four rivers and the trees grow there and their roots go into the depths of it. And then they produce fruit that brings healing to the nations every month. And so instead of like jigging through the Amazon forest to find some miracle cure for cancer, you just eat the fruit and boom eternal life it's right there this is the new earth everything is restored and glorified no more poisonous snakes no more mosquitoes no more ticks oh no my more gosh a life without mosquitoes that sounds great yep no more stinky underarms no more stinky diapers oh yeah right? there you go yeah diapers stink you're up, you to, know your, many, you're up to your underarms oh diapers. my gosh I listen we had so many diapers before but when you add a second baby oh, double the diapers double duty if you, you know what I mean. <laughs> Number five. Before you can Number edit this, two. Edit this out if you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's no number five in your in your household. I don't even know what that would be. But I remember years ago talking to Father Ben Hass from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Marquette. Is that yeah, Marquette. And edit this out if you think this is too earthy, but he asked, would there be passing gas in heaven? Mm, what is the flattest status in heaven? Yeah, exactly. And I said, well, probably not because... 
gas is the product of imperfect digestion and in heaven you'd have perfect digestion but he says but it feels so good <laughs> wouldn't god want you to have everything that you desire in heaven so oh that is great yeah you, now I, that is something i will think about you have the most while. perfect flatulence in oh, heaven that's how it would, maybe you have gonna, it but it smells good yes yeah, smells oh. like roses right i know chris is our uh, barometer for tastelessness yeah, edit so. it out okay number Five, 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 five. The church's tabernacle fulfills God's Old Testament promise to be present with his people. How so? It's the new... Temple. It's the new Christ. temple. It's the new ark. It's the oh, new, uh, the new ark. holy of holies. Yeah, it's the new ark in the new holy of holies. We've talked about this in episodes before. Oh, so in the, in the, the temple that was destroyed, is that the second temple? Well, the first, several of them were destroyed. Okay, the one that was destroyed in 70? In, in, yeah, that was okay. the second temple or the third temple. Was there presence of God in that? Was well, that's the funny thing is that by the time that temple was there, there, there was no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. The Jews were going through this ritual of giving honor and going to the presence of God, but there was no presence of God to go into. And so that's this preparation for the, for its fulfillment. So the, the Wait, tab- where did it go? Well, it was stolen when the second temple the the first second temple was oh, destroyed. Didn't Indiana Jones get it back? Well, that's what he wanted it for. Yeah, he wanted oh, it. It's, a, it's supposed to be in some government warehouse in Arizona, I think, according to Indiana Jones, or in Ethiopia, <laughs> according to some other people. But anyway, nobody knows where it is. But the point is, God sort of got you know Elvis has left the building. God's presence had left the temple. <laughs> the king be- has left because the, the new presence, the new temple was was coming. At the same time, as Cardinal Ratzinger says in the spirit of the liturgy, God wants to abide with His people. Just, it's like grandpa in front of the fireplace, always there, always go to talk to him, rocking in his chair, always ready to give you his wisdom, always ready to be there. At the same time, you have to take that presence out to the world. So you have what they used to call the active presence in the Eucharist of this sort of go out and do, make disciples of all nations, but always can go back to the abiding presence of God. So the abiding presence of the Old Testament continues even as this kind of new missionary presence goes out to the world. So... The tabernacle isn't just that thing for private devotion alone. It isn't just that pre-Vatican II thing that gets in the way of, you know, quote-unquote real participation. It's a fulfillment and a continuation of the Old Testament customs and traditions. Usually, the golden box with an angel on each side, just like the Ark of the Covenant. What about the, uh, I don't want to derail this too far, what about the bread? There was like show bread or some such in the Old Yes, temple? there were 12 round loaves of bread in the temple that were brought into the Holy show, of Holies. Wait, show bread? Like one of them was not, it was just for show? They were all for showing the face of God. It's a translation of the word face. Sometimes it's called the face bread. What? Yeah, because they would bring it into the I've presence of, of God. I've heard of lamb cake, but I've never heard of face bread. Is this the, uh, there was a gospel reading recently where Jesus and the disciples are picking the, the heads off of the wheat, and Jesus says, do you not know what David and what his army did? They went, that's the bread that they went in to eat in the temple? Yeah, and the, they ate it on the Sabbath. The priests uh, ate the showbread on the Sabbath. So the round breads oh, I did went okay. into the Holy of Holies, and there, by being in the presence of God, they kind of Which acquired the, the, the presence by, yeah, by being brought before the Ark of the Covenant. And then something of God's presence kind of got carried in the bread and they would go and eat it on the Sabbath. So we were often thinking of the Last Supper as the as a Eucharist sort of narrative, but you can also think of the temple bread. People as were a mad Eucharist at narrative. that, right? Didn't they see that say that was like super sacrilegious that they did that? On the Sabbath, right, because it yeah. was work. Um, but they're actually communing with God on the Sabbath, which is the time mm. to do that, to delight in the new the new garden and God's presence in the yeah. world. All right. There's another perspective on the tabernacle. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. And if you don't know Ontology. ontology you just say oh that's that pre-vatican II thing or that's that devotional thing or you just you don't even think about it oh the tabernacle in a church belongs there when it does i feel right well that's right except why cardinal ratzinger gives that beautiful notion of continuity with the abiding presence of god which is in no competition 
with the presence of God taken out to the world. They're two, uh, two in one things. Nice. All right. Number, what number are we on? Six. 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 Okay. Six. Stay with us, Chris. All right. And you know what six is about? Starts with C. Sounds like alums. Columns. Columns. Yes. So you should have said sound like Gollum. My precious yeah. Gollum. <laughs> Actually, if you know me, that is getting my precious It columns. is. Oh, my goodness. Well, but don't look at the number six, but do you there know? There's a meme coming your way tomorrow. <laughs> what are columns? What am I going to say about columns? Columns they, are people. They are the architectural people. rendition of pillars of, of the, church, the church, supporting church mission. And all through scripture, columns show up. Old Testament, New Testament. In fact, the reading was just the other day that Moses... Um, um, where's Abraham? I forget. One of the great Old Testament patriarchs um, set up 12 pillars to represent the 12 tribes of Israel as he offered um, an offering to after meeting uh, God. It was so, Jacob. Wasn't Jacob's dream and he set up the altar the next day? Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. know. I should be prepared. This for is this. super awkward. Actually, awkward. it was Moses. It was uh, Exodus 24. Moses set up 12 pillars to represent ah, yeah. the 12 tribes of Israel. That's um, what I meant. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to edit this. Maybe I won't. We're giving we're giving uh, food to all the people who think Catholics don't know scripture. But hey, we're talking about the concepts. We don't memorize the book. We understand the ideas. Uh, Psalm 144. May your daughters be right as up. graceful as columns. Graceful as columns. What? Uh, adorning um, uh, the temple. Adorned for a palace. Oh, that's it. Right. So columns are men. Columns are women. The palace is the place where... Um, columns are set up in the temple of solomon there are two hollow bronze columns set up in front of the door of the temple and they're given people's names and they stand stand guard there at the door but the big one for the new testament is um galatians chapter 2 verse 9 this one i actually do know from memory peter james and john are called columns, columns. pillars <laughs> pillars of the church it was a 50 50 shot uh, I think one of us would have gotten well, it. Column pillar is kind of the same thing, but you know we use the term pillar of the church for people who are always there, always supporting the mission of the church. Come every week, come every day, bake sales, Knights of Columbus, ushers, all that. They're pillars of the church, just as there are pillars um, in the church. So uh, columns also in the ancient Greek world were considered um, uh, moving. They were, they were like people who were dancing because the bottom of columns called the base or the basis which in Greek was the, peda- the, the pedestal. Well, that's the Latin term, yeah, but the basis was the Greek word for foot, but okay. it was also the Greek word for the, the, the dance that people did in processions. So as they mm. marched up to the temple, they would do this kind of swaying dance, and that was called doing the basis, kind of doing the foot. And um, That's a good dance. You know columns, how to do the foot? Columns are saints marching down the side of the church in their procession uh, toward God, just as Christians are. So if you know what a column is, that level of its ontology, mm-hmm. then Pil- oh, you can start sorry. really theologizing pretty, pretty quickly. We've seen recently uh, in that article you wrote uh, for the Adoramus Bulletin about there's the the columns at St. Peter's, mm-hmm. and then there's a, there's a, a saint standing on top of each of them, and it's almost like this they're drawing you in, these arms coming out of St. Peter's. Oh, and the, the, big, columns the big porch moving. out front. Yeah. yeah, right. You get a real sense of oh, that. Oh, are you talking about the Baraccio? Nailed it. I don't that's what know that's them. what those arms are called with Baraccio? The Baraccio, yeah. Oh, because Baraccio means the arms yeah. in, in Italian. Oh, yeah. The arms. Knowledge bomb. That was a fast Boom. food place, Baraccio's. No, that's Bocci's Pizza. I don't know. Okay. I don't know what you're talking about. Number seven. Number seven. seven the altar seven. signifies what? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Pillars. No. On top. Wait. <laughs> People. Persons. You, you had it right. Jesus Christ. Jesus yeah, Christ standing amidst his people. Yeah. 
This is one I think people forget a lot. When you look in the documents of the church, the dedication of an altar, it's very clear. The altar is Christ. Why is the altar Christ? His body was the place where his sacrifice happened. Sometimes the cross is called an altar too, but if you say, where did the sacrifice happen? His body was the place. Who did the offering? Christ. What was the offering? Christ. Where was the offering? Christ. Christ. And so when you think of an altar, uh, how would you represent in architectural terms in a glorified table the resurrected body of Christ? White? Maybe. Well, perfect anyway, or as perfect, perfect as it could be. Elevated, shaped beautiful. like a person? It would not be shaped oh, like a sorry. person because it's the literal. table, it's the oh, altar, right, it's a place right. of sacrifice. So it wouldn't be a spindly wooden table that you could pick up and use in your backyard for a summer picnic, right? Like a lot of churches from the 90s and the 80s, the altar was considered the living room table or the dining room table and had a real tabley form. And it is a table in a sense, but it's the table of Christ's own glorified body. And so what does that look like? It's made of many members, so it's all of us. What are those members compared to in Scripture in the book of Revelation? You said it already a couple people. times. People. The people are compared to and oh, signified by stones. stones stones, and glorified radiant stones. Gems. Gems. So if you look at a lot of traditional altars, they'll be made of lots of little pieces of colors of uh, colored stone to signify glorified mystical body with its many members, all forming one place of sacrifice. And so the slab on the top of the mensa would be a big, thick, solid stone. That, properly speaking, is the altar. And so all of these things uh, come together. And so, you know, if you're giving a, a tour of a church to your grade school or your CCD or to your out-of-town guests, look for plants and flower buds in the paintings or in the carvings. New Garden of Eden, New Earth. Look for angels and saints, heavenly beings with you. Look for columns as people. Look for the altar as Christ standing amidst his people. And then everything in the church around the altar would show that they all focus on Christ and they're um, glorifying Christ. You can talk about the Old Testament inheritance and the temple and the synagogue. And then finally say, guess why this is called the church? Because it signifies us. Uh, we are the church. Yes, the people are the church, but the building shows us joined with the larger membership of the church, the heavenly membership, the new heaven and the new earth. Really not that hard. Yeah. Don't forget the face bread. And the showbread too. And the showbread. Yeah. Well, it's true. will give you something different to look at or something to look at in a different way the next time you go to Mass on Sunday. And it'd also ruin you if you go to a not very well-designed church. You look for these things and they're not there, then you can start to say, I like this or I don't, but then say, there's something missing. You can analyze it in a good intellectually rigorous way based on the ontology and then see if it meets those standards or not. Rather than just saying, it looks good. Or it I looks like dumb. It. Or, you yeah. know, p- people in my business often say, I don't like those modern churches and they don't get to the next level. Something built yesterday, the Raleigh Cathedral was just dedicated, you know, just last week and it's quite glorious. It's newer than any other church in the world and it's very, very traditional and there's a couple of the traditional buildings coming up. So modern doesn't mean contemporary in time. It means usually to most people, it means it's not doing these seven things and if Mm -hmm. it does, it's a great church adding its voice to the great chorus of churches throughout history. If it doesn't, it's just not a great song. It'll probably be forgettable. All right. Well, uh, that does it for this one. Thank you, Dennis, for that. I really appreciate seven your seven points. And uh, why don't we uh, why don't we answer a, lit- uh, answer a liturgy guys question? What do you think? Do we All have right. an architectural question? No, probably not. Nobody nobody cares. <laughs> oh, <darn it. laughs> Somebody send us a little architecture question. Empire crest. Empire crest. So why go to the liturgical institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. 
Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this question comes from Cole M., and Cole says, first, thank you so much for your wonderful podcast. I've learned so much, and that learning has enriched my experience at Mass. Awesome. Pray Excellent. for us. Yeah. Please. We'll I am, pray for you. And he says, I'm looking for the podcast return from the summer break. Well, you're in luck because we have already returned. Here we are. In the meantime, I have two questions I hope you can answer. The first one is, in the Roman canon, the priest says, Remember, Lord, your servants and all gathered here whose faith and devotion are known to you. For them we offer you this sacrifice of praise, or they offer it for themselves and all who are dear to them. Cole says, Who is they being referred to when the priest says, or they offer it for themselves? The yeah. people in the pews? Question mark? Yeah, that's my understanding. I think I picked this up in Joseph uh, Jungmann, uh, Mass of the Roman Rite, or something similar to that. That um, yeah, people would would bring not just simply bread and wine and other gifts to be offered, but they would bring um, their own prayers, works, joys, and sufferings and intentions, and that they would offer it themselves along with the hands of the priests. Okay? But what if they weren't there? And I, as Father, would you say mass for um, some intention? Mm-hmm. And I might not be there to offer that intention. Or that intention might not be here. So what it's saying, I think, is what I read uh, in uh, uh, Joseph Jungmann, is that either the priest would offer that intention that he was given to offer, whether that, pers- whether that intention happened to be there in the nave of the church or not. Or, uh, let's say, maybe he's not offering that particular intention, but I am there offering my own intentions oh, myself. Oh, got it. You know, actually in that same context of the mass so that's one i don't know theory at least as uh, who the they represents is me in who happens to be in the nave of the church offering it or maybe i don't happen to be there so you're offering it for me does that make sense yeah i heard uh, one of our faculty members say that that was originally an option so the pre- it was kind of or they offer it for themselves, sort of like in parentheses. You know, sometimes you see the little parentheses, our Pope N, and you have to fill something in the N so right. that you could either say, I offer it. Well, there's only or one you option. Say, they offer it for themselves. <laughs> yeah. And somehow in the in the manuscripts, it got brought in as one sentence as rather than two things. Oh. But because that was in the Latin, that's what they translated. It's another one of these archaeological things that survives as kind of an artifact that... Um, even though it doesn't always make sense immediately, there's a reason why, and that was one of those reasons. At least that's that's what I've been told. Not verifiable with footnotes quite yet. Well, it's funny that you say that because his second question, uh, we did answer in our uh, Noble Simplicity, Noble Beauty episode, and he wanted to know why deacons and subdeacons elevate the chasuble of a priest during the elevation of the Eucharist during the extraordinary form. So would you mind repeating that? Sure. Go ahead, Chris. Or you can put it this way. as Oftentimes when the bishop will go around and incense the altar, some bishops want a deacon on either side to kind of assist by holding the, the chasuble. Others just will say, no, no, I can take care of this. You wait here until I get around the altar. Right. When we had um, 
solemn vespers, the priest came in in a cope, and it, I, I guess they were feeling particularly solemn, so they had a server on each side <laughs> holding the cope for him. So his hands were together, and the, they were holding the cope. It was kind of just, it's like an, at one hand, it increases the level of solemnity, right? There's more people doing this thing. It's kind of subservient in the proper sense to the to the leadership role of the, of the priest or the bishop. Um, but on the other hand, there's kind of a practical reason. You know, when vestments, if they were particularly embroidered, if they had gold thread, if they had gems, they could be quite heavy. And so to have help, the priest is raising his arms at the elevation to have help lifting that up. Sometimes the medieval um, chasubles were called conical, almost like the shape of one of those pointy uh, water cooler cups that you get, you know, the doctor's Like a office. cone. Like an ice cream cone, right. Yeah. But there'd be a hole at the bottom and then turn it upside down. And sometimes they couldn't. They couldn't really lift their arms very high, so if they, they needed help. Like a T-Rex. Little tiny arms under <laughs> <Yeah>. there, right. <laughs> so, so there's now a I'm of, imagining a T-Rex wearing a jazzable. It's like, funny. Like a lot of liturgical things, there's kind of a practical reason, but then as it gets incorporated into the ritual, it takes on kind of spiritual reasons and becomes part of the enrichment of the, the ceremony and therefore increases the solemnity of the event. All right, Cole. You got lucky. You got a twofer on that one. It won't happen again to anybody else. But if you do have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.